0: amen thank you JT great songs today songs about God's faithfulness and goodness and especially about his tenderness to provide us rain right when we need it so uh, it's a good day to be inside well good morning everyone good to see evidently not everyone went out of town for Thanksgiving and uh, it's good to see everyone here this morning today I want to take us to the Old Testament for our time in God's Word the book of Isaiah and um, Shouldn't be too hard to find. It's kind of right there in the middle of the Old Testament. If you're uh, somewhere between Song of Solomon, you're right, right between Song of Solomon and Jeremiah, chapter 1, Isaiah. I may be wrong, you know how memory fails us sometimes, but I think this is the first time I've shared the platform with a turkey. So I hope he's not a distraction. If he starts to uh, get a little rowdy back there, we'll, uh, we'll keep an eye on it for sure. Isaiah is a popular and familiar Old Testament book. Isaiah is an essential prophet of God for the time in which he lives to speak a word to the people of Judah, the southern kingdom, to call them back to God, back to where they should be, back to where the place of blessing is. To wake up, as it were, spiritually, and to be reminded of their place in God's plan. The name Isaiah means "the Lord is salvation." Probably many of us today might know someone named Isaiah, and with good reason. It's a good Bible name and a good um, reference point for faithfulness in God. Isaiah is a prophet. We hear much of prophets in the Old Testament, of course. A prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of God to the people. And indeed, Isaiah, in his years of ministry, does so using very expressive terminologies and words. And we'll see it in the passage we'll look at. He describes things they are so vivid in the imagery. Uh, He has a more expansive vocabulary than any other of the Old Testament prophets. It tells us something of his upraising in the sense of being comfortable in the court of the king. He would serve under four and also of his education and how God used him in such tremendous ways to bring his word to the people. If you look at verse one of chapter one, you'll see he served for four kings. And that's a quite expansive history. He served those four kings over a period of 60-plus years, all told. You have to sort of go back and piece the, uh, uh, the, the dates together to come up with that. But some 64, 65 years he stood in this role to be a voice of God to the people of Judah. He speaks to them at the moment we catch the Scripture here. In a time where there is great turmoil in the country There's desperation across the land The people are wicked We'll see some very strong terms that he'll use to describe that They are stiff-necked It's not a term you hear much, but we all, know, we all understand what it means It's a term that applies to uh, the people of the Exodus They are a stiff-necked generation They are set in their ways And nothing will distract them from doing what they want to do. Yes, we're all guilty of that sometimes, aren't we? They are a rebellious nation. They turn their back on God. And so God sends this great prophet Isaiah to speak words, to ring in their ears and to echo in their hearts, to call them back to the place where they should be. Isaiah is a popular reference even in the New Testament. He is quoted some 65 times in the New Testament. 20 times he is mentioned by name. And historians will tell us, church historians will tell us, during the first couple of centuries of the church, that Isaiah was one of the most popular books for the early Christians to preach from, to teach from. So we stand today with Isaiah before us, Following a long tradition of those who have found the truth of Isaiah to be practical to their time. It is in in Isaiah that we find some very popular and, and familiar verses. Chapter 40, verse 31. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Probably a familiar passage to us. Passage we'll hear this time of year with Christmas upon us. Therefore the Lord himself from Isaiah seven fourteen shall give you a sign Behold a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah's words Prophesied seven hundred years before the coming of the Messiah. Also In prophecy, Isaiah would record for us in chapter 53, verses 4 and 5, a prophecy of Christ's suffering on the cross. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Indeed, Isaiah gives us lots of great insight into God's work and God's plan through his word and to his people. The reality of Isaiah's situation is not unique because down through history, even before the time of Isaiah, people showed themselves to be very much the same attitude. God, you may be there, but I really don't care. I'll live my life the way I want to live it. I'll make my own rules. I'll follow my own philosophies of life. I will seek my way, and I will exalt my plans, and I will live just fine. Thank you very much. That attitude is still here today. It exists in our culture as it does around the world in many places. And it is here in Isaiah chapter 1 that the issue is laid out, we are called to hear the evidence that will be presented on behalf of God as he speaks against the people of Judah. But wait, these are God's people. These people have a heritage. They can trace their lineage back through the tribes of Jacob. They can speak of their forefather, Abraham. They can talk of the great lawgiver, Moses, and what he did for their forefathers. These are God's people, but they have turned their back on him. And so as we read today this passage, I want us to hear a parallel. Yes, it's their time. It's their life it's their circumstance, their decisions, but we cannot read it, I believe, without hearing the parallel of our time, in our situation, in our challenges. and may it ring as a warning to us, a warning that the principles of God's righteousness are true to every generation, are true to every language, and are true to every people. We are not exempt from these principles. These principles give us a way in which we view life, a way in which we understand how our day-to-day, year-to-year life is lived. And God is, only God can, speaks with accurate honesty. He speaks of their wretchedness, of their hypocrisy. He speaks leading them to a path of grace. So let's look, beginning in verse 2, and I'll make a a few brief comments, but I want to work our way to a verse a little further down where we'll stop and pause for a moment. But Look with me in verse 2, Isaiah chapter 1. Hear, O heavens, and give ear. O earth, for the Lord has spoken. It's as if the courtroom of heaven rings forth the call of the bailiff. To say, hear ye, hear ye. The court is in session and a charge has been brought. Let us hear that charge from the very words of the Lord himself. The quote begins in verse 2. I have nourished, God speaking. I have nourished and brought up children and they have rebelled against me. The charge of rebellion. Verse 3. The ox knows his owner and the donkey his master's crib. Even the animals know who feeds them, cares for them, supplies for them. But Israel does not know me. My people do not consider. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. They bear it on their shoulders, as it were. Their iniquity is all around them. A seed of evil doers. What words these portray to us? You see Isaiah's imagery here? It's not you don't miss God's expression here through Isaiah of what the people have done. A seed of evildoers, children that are corrupters. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. A term that comes out of the scripture here and in other places or references, the idea of backsliding. They have gone away backwards. Why should you be stricken anymore? The word there, the idea is disciplined. Why should I discipline you anymore? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. They were mentally and spiritually out of step with God. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, here's the result of their rebellion. They bear the evidence, the wounds, the bruises, the putrefying sores. Think for a moment what the imagery that creates. Those sores have not been closed or bandaged, neither bound up, neither mollified. The idea there is putting salve on it to soften the the tissue so it can heal. They've not been mollified with ointment. Your country is desolate. Look around, he says. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land, strangers devour it in your presence. And it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. And the daughter of Zion, speaking here in reference to Jerusalem, is left as a cottage in a vineyard. The idea there is deserted. Deserted. There's a structure there, but there's no life in it. As a lodge in a garden of cucumbers. Interesting wording for us to try to grapple with, but it's simply the idea of a structure with no purpose. What good is a cabin in the garden of cucumbers? It's an an odd fit. It'd be like us saying, putting a swimming pool in the middle of the North Pole. It just doesn't fit. You are as a besieged city, verse 8 concludes. Verse 9, except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant of survivors. There is that remnant, those who hold to God's truth and God's purpose and God's plan. That remnant. We should have have been as Sodom, and we should have been likened to Gomorrah. We know that reference from Genesis. Sodom and Gomorrah, cities that received the judgment of God because of their perverted ways. Verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. He carries that, he carries that imagery now into the, to the leadership. Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom, and give ear unto the law of God, ye people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices? He now addresses their religious activity. You see... They were doing what we would all naturally do. But but God, haven't I done this? Haven't I followed your rules and your commandments? To what purpose is a multitude of your sacrifices unto me? What, What good are your religious expressions when they're all empty, says the Lord? Middle of verse 11, I am full of the burnt offerings. I have seen enough. I have seen enough of you bringing burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. And I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of goats. You go through the actions, but there's no sincere intent behind the actions. I've had enough of that, God says. What good is it? When you come to appear before me, who has required this at your hand to tread in my courts? It's as if he's saying... Don't you realize you're walking into the residence of God, the Holy One, with sinful feet? What were those feet doing this week? What were those feet doing last night? And yet you show up in the presence of God thinking that you have brought some sacrifice to avail for your actions? He says, verse 13, Bring no more vain oblations. Interesting phrase there from the King James. It means worthless offerings. Don't bring your empty, worthless offerings to me. Your incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, these would be like festivals. The calling of the assemblies would be like special meetings. I cannot away with, the way the King James phrases. It's an interesting phrase. It simply means I cannot bear it, away with it. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. God says, you call meetings in my name, and you show up, but you have sin in your heart. Your body is evidenced of it. The hypocrisy of verse 14 is addressed. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. You're hypocrites from top to bottom, from inside to outside. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them, or to hear them, or to hear more of it. And when you spread forth your hands, the idea there is in prayer and and even pleading for help, I will hide my eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. The evidence of sin is upon and drips from your hands. And you pretend to come into my presence with that sin on your hands? Verse 16, wash you, make you clean. What makes you think you can do this in my presence? Put away the evil in your doings and before my eyes, cease to do evil. In short, repent. See your life in light of God's righteousness, not in your own self-righteousness. Learn to do well. Learn to do what is right. Verse 17 has several, several directives in it. Do what is right. Do well. Seek justice or judgment as it's translated here. Seek justice. Relieve the oppressed. Judge or defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. As the Apostle James will say quite a bit later, be not hearers of the word only. Be doers. When you read those 17 verses, you hear a strong accusation, an accurate representation of their condition, not only of their body, of their country, of their spirit. A pathetic, miserable, and wretched people they are. And yet they think they're okay. They are rebels. Listen, when you summarize all those, listen to this list of what you come up with. They are rebels, sinful, evildoers, corrupt, backsliders at best, perverted at worst. Sick in the head and in the heart, they have a, a mental and a spiritual sickness upon them. They're a putrefying open wound with the stench of death. The land even suffers from their corruptness. Their sin is to be compared with the debauchery of Sodom and Gomorrah. Their religion is empty. Their words are vain. Their actions are hopeless. It is not a pretty picture. It wants us in our mind to turn away. How can we see that? Words do not do justice. To the corruption that God addresses. And the wickedness that God sees because of his righteousness and his holiness. This is Isaiah. This is his task. What a wonderful message to preach to the people. For 60 some years. His voice was true. His prophecies were true. Some came, came, came to be even during his lifetime. To validate his role as a prophet. Yes, this is Judah some 2,700 years ago. But boy, sure sounds a lot like what's around us today, doesn't it? A land that is suffering because of the sins of the people. And sad to say that even some who put themselves under the banner of Christian fall into this situation. Now, I understand the church is not Israel. One of the most essential truths we have to take into this discussion. The church is not Israel. America is not Israel. But nonetheless, should we walk away from such a passage and just say, well, I hope they figured it out eventually? No, we have to think, how does this sit in our world, in our lives today? You know, the Old Testament is a treasury of promises and principles that God has Preserved for us through his word that we might learn the lessons The prophet's word proclaimed truth to the southern kingdom of Judah But they reflect a truth for us today And they bring to us a reality that we need to Grab And address Indeed this was written to another time another people another language another culture But to miss the principle of what Isaiah is teaching is to miss a principle that will keep us on the same path that these people were on. To miss the principle is to condemn ourselves and even worse, to condemn future generations. How did they get here? The same way is repeated in other situations. You go back to the people of the Exodus. How did they get to a rebellious stage? You go to the book of Judges and you see the cycle repeat itself over and over again. You go to Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Whether Israel is a united kingdom or a divided kingdom, the principle is always true. The people get in this condition because they are forgetful. And because of their forgetfulness, they become ignorant. What does a forgetful generation teach Ignorance, if the fathers forget the goodness of God, the value of righteousness, the truth of God's word, then they will raise children of ignorance who know nothing of God's truth. Selfishness overshadows such a life. Selfishness to follow our own way, to come up with our own solutions, to scheme our own plans. Yes, we say it sure is foolish to try that, but we, we do it anyway, don't we? There's just something that drives us to say, I, I've, I've got this one. I can figure this one out. I'll do it my way. I'm sure God will understand. May the words of Isaiah 1 echo in our thoughts every time we have such a, a passing discussion with ourselves. I am so grateful the chapter does not end here. Nor does God's word end here. He has rightfully judged and his accusation is true. There is no defense. Because now we see verse 18 open up to us. What do we do in such a condition? What's available to us? Verse 18, come now, the Lord says. Come now. A very present tense action. Come now. And let us reason together. It's as if God were to say, what a wonderful setup. Have a seat at the couch. We've got some things to talk about. One-on-one, we're going to reason together what the solution to your issue is. I want you to understand how valuable you are to me and how important you are to me. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Here's the situation. Though your sins be as scarlet, we've probably heard these verses too, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, They shall be like wool. Let the colors here paint the imagery in our mind of what God is saying. The scarlet, the crimson. We know those colors. Be hard pressed to find one up here, I bet, but we know that color. You know what the color of scarlet and crimson represent? Dead blood. Have you ever had a scab heel? How does it, what does it look like? Scarlet, crimson. It's dead blood. And that's what we're dealing with. Our sins condemn us, but God has given us hope. For some reason, I get to verse 18. We do what we all naturally do. You know, you know how children do this, right? When we as parents or grandparents, when we address our children over something they've done wrong, they all of a sudden get very interested in what their shoes look like. Yeah, yeah, I know. Verse 18 gives me hope to lift my head. Yes, your sins are here. But they can be. They can be white as snow. They can be as wool, pure, and spun. But the hinge is verses 19 and 20. If you be willing and obedient. Willing and obedient. Willing to repent. Obedient to follow. There's the hinge. If you do these things, you shall eat good of the land. You see, the land is cursed by your actions. Your family, your life is in turmoil because you refuse to be willing and obedient. Verse 20, the hinge swings again. But if you refuse and rebel, you can continue on this path. If you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured with the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. End of quote. The parallel of the promise. I want to focus the remaining of our time on verses 18 to 20. For there we see three points that frame the reality of this entire issue. First is the invitation. Come now and let us reason together. It is a reasonable thing to put your faith in the eternal living God. It is a reasonable thing. There's nothing unreasonable about it. A philosopher of a couple of centuries ago once said, Christianity is a faith is a leap into the dark. What a terribly bad description that is. The faith of a Christian is a step into the light. It's to see, finally, the reality of life and its purpose and its plan. It's a step into a reasonable experience and a reasonable reality. The realities of life are addressed in the Scriptures. They are given to us in language we can understand in ways we can comprehend With ideas that we can take action with. The scripture gives to us what we need to be reasonable in the way in which we live our lives. What's happening all around us? Unreasonableness. I don't need God, the atheist said. I don't care if there is a God, the agnostic says. I've got multitudes of gods, the pantheist says, and they're all in a rock or a tree or a cow somewhere. I'll find one of them. Unreasonable. There is no God, evolution says. Oh, sure. What's the evidence for that? Show me the design of this planet. The wonders of the human body. The experience that we all live day to day in an environment that keeps us alive, that all happened by accident? There is no reasonableness in it. God invites us to his reasoned reality. And his reasoned reality is a righteous evaluation of our condition. In ourselves, what are we? The, the scripture calls us to put a mirror in front of ourselves. In ourselves, this mirror shows us we are vile, corrupt, Wicked, we are hopeless, we are putrefying sores with the stench of death because we are dead. We have no spiritual life to bring to this equation. We were born spiritually dead. Yet God invites us to hear His word, to hear His instruction of righteousness. And to hear his plan of salvation. God invites us to do that. The invitation is given clearly and plainly in Scripture. We dare not turn this invitation away. For to do so is to lose the blessings of life and the joys of eternity. The invitation is plainly given. Behold, I stand at the door and not, Jesus says. Come unto me, all ye that are heavy laden, Jesus says. God would have all men to receive the gift of salvation. Humanity suffers because of our own unwillingness to be reasonable. God says, I'm willing to be reasonable with you. But you think you have a better answer. The parallel is so easy, we've all seen it probably. Is it possible to convince a two-year-old? We want to be reasonable. Eat this, put this on, take the bath, brush it. We want to be reasonable. But a two-year-old doesn't see the reasonableness in our expectations. God says, be reasonable. Take a look beyond the moment. Take a look beyond your flesh. Take a look beyond yourself. The invitation stands. Come into me. Jesus says. The invitation is framed for us there in verse 18. The condemnation is also framed. Our sins are obvious. They are scarlet. They are red like Clemson. You can't miss it. The condemnation frames the reality of God's invitation. Because God says there's a solution to your sin The evidence is obvious. Our sins are many. They are on our hands and they reside like blood dripping from our fingers. And we are condemned by all that is holy and righteous. The condemnation stands plain and clear. Isaiah again recorded in chapter 64 verse six, we are all as an unclean thing. The best reference to that is of a leper, leprosy, that disease that eats the body from the outside in. We are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are as filthy rags. Y'all have heard me give the example before. I think it's still very applicable, especially now that I have a nearly two-year-old grandson, and another one, just a few months old, is that soiled diaper. What does a soiled diaper do? You turn away from it. You invoke an involuntary gag reflex. That's what our righteousness is before God. The condemnation of Isaiah expresses it so well. Our righteousness is nothing but filthy rags. We all do fade as a leaf. You know, just a few weeks ago, we were bragging on those leaves, how beautiful they are, how wonderful they look, how majestic. And a few weeks later, we're, get these leaves out of here. Burn them. Get rid of them. It's Isaiah's imagery. We fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. God says, I want you here, and you go, No, no, no. I want to be over here, God. What's wrong with over here? The winds. The winds of philosophy, the winds of culture, the winds of pop music, the winds of pop philosophies. I mean, the list goes on and on. They have they blow us away from where God wants us to be if we're not attentive to our life before the Lord. We cannot deny this condemnation. It is a fact of reality. There is none righteous. The book of Romans, chapter 10, will say, There is none righteous. No, not one. The condemnation cannot be more plain nor more obvious. And so, what's the situation? That's the third thing that frames these verses. The situation is God says, I'm willing. I'm willing to take your sins. And not just cover them up. I'm willing to wash them away. For indeed, nothing can wash away my sins. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. They shall be as white as snow. They shall be as wool, spun, pure. What an offer. I mean, this is a whole lot better. Let's make a deal. I don't care what's behind door number two. I want what God offers me. And the provision of God is satisfactory. Once God has cleansed us, there is no appeals court where our sins get brought up again. The condemnation to us has been declared righteous by our faith in Christ. What an offer. The reality of this offer hinges on the truth of God's Word. And when we see Isaiah right and the other prophets right, when we see the apostles record for us the words of Christ and the things that are, that are part of what we understand as the spiritual life of humanity, we understand that God's word is true. God's grace is sufficient and God's promise is unfailing. If there's that hinge, Because there's where the choice lies. If you're willing to repent and obedient to follow, if you're willing and obedient, Isaiah says, the Lord says through Isaiah, you shall eat the good of the land. Jesus would say life and life more abundant. And when life here ends, and it surely will, then I go to prepare a place for you that there, where I am, there you may be also. If you're willing and obedient, if you're willing to repent and obedient to follow, you shall eat the good of the land. The choice, the choice is laid out. But if you refuse and rebel, then your consequences will be to be devoured with the sword. Judgment shall come. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. There is no greater authority. There is no greater reality. Regardless of the rules and laws that man establishes, God's rule and law will always supersede. You see, someday even the Supreme Court will have to stand before the Supreme Judge. Human authority has its limits and its purpose, but it has its limits. I hope you see the parallel. Isaiah's words have been in Scripture 2,700 years, and boy, they read just like today's newspaper. The corruption, the evilness, the wickedness, the burning of your cities, the land is desolate. Strangers are invading you. And yet the reality is still the same. God offers his great gift of salvation. His promises are true. And as we sang just a few moments ago, he is good all the time. I will sing of the goodness of the Lord. So here's the path laid before us, the options. Will we repent and receive? Or will we refuse and rebel? That's the only two paths laid before us. So I trust in seeing the parallel of Isaiah, we come face to face to be honest with ourselves and to be honest with God. That we accept his offer of reasonable invitation. And that each person needs to recognize the need of a Savior. The need of a Redeemer. But I'll, I'll do it myself, some would say. God, God says, I've had enough of it. You keep trying and trying. What righteousness can you bring that would even scratch the surface of what I'm offering you? Will you take off the dirty rags of your life and put on the righteousness of Christ? The apostle Paul will use that imagery. Let us be sincere. Let us be honest. Let's see that we have a need that only God can provide, a need of eternal life. Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. He could speak those words as surely to us today, because the scripture does, and it still says, you must be born again. Where is your life before God? Do you have that eternal life living in you by your faith, by your being willing to repent? God, I come as a sinner. I come vile and empty of myself. I repent of that. And I accept your gift and offer of salvation. Have you made that simple proclamation that puts you in a category of faith? I receive it by faith, by grace, the Scripture says, by grace through faith. Have you received that? Maybe you have. God still has a word for us through this passage. Don't let your Christian activity be empty and vile. Come to my house, as the Scripture calls us to, with an intent to seek and serve God, to respond, to use your life in a way that will help build this church and continue to carry the gospel. It is a reasonable invitation for the follower of Christ to likewise commit to the same following. Isaiah could not be more clear. It's a message that will be told to generation after generation after generation. And today it rings in our ears from the very pages of Scripture. Will we receive God's solution? Will we repent and be obedient? That's the calling. I trust today that's a desire. That's what the Scripture calls us to do, each one of us. Regardless of your age, regardless of your experience, regardless of your background, today face the Scripture squarely. and Put yourself in a place where God wants you to be. Let's bow our heads there. Where is your life in relation to God? Have you seen the reasonableness of what God offers? Have you sensed the Lord in your life drawing you unto him for salvation? I need to be saved, you might say. I need to receive the gift of eternal life. I need to be born again. That is a simple prayer based upon biblical truth. To pray, Father, I repent. Forgive me of my sins. I receive the gift. I am willing to follow. And as best I know how, I receive and ask for your forgiveness. Is that your prayer today? If so, make it real. Make it unique and authentic to you in your life. Receive that gift of eternal life. But for the many today who have made that choice, our faith is in a resurrected Lord, a living Savior. What's the scripture calling us to do? Where would we serve? How will we display that our works match our words? How are we living the Christian life? Well, one thing's for sure, without him, we can do nothing. And so the value of these words needs to find a resting place in our thoughts today, too. Dear Father, thank you today for this passage from Isaiah. It causes us to face the reality of righteousness and to see our sin. And I pray today you'll do a great work in the hearts of each of us here. Maybe a work for salvation. Maybe a work for rededication. A work of surrender. A work that reflects being willing and obedient. Help us each to do that in your will with the leading of the Holy Spirit and with the direction of your word before us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I have you to stand, if you will.